Thanks for joining us today for this Ropes and Gray podcast. I'm Jack Eckhart, a consultant in our benefits consulting group from our New York office. I'm here with David Kirshner, a principal in our benefits consulting group who's based in Boston and San Francisco. I'm also joined by John Reinstein, an ERISA and benefits associate, also in our New York office. Welcome, David and John. It's great to have you on another episode. 2022 is shaping up to be another busy year for 401k and 403b plan fiduciaries. We are continuing to see a flurry of activity on the excessive fee litigation front. There's also important new retirement plan legislation on the horizon with Secure 2.0 and some new guidance from the DOL pertaining to one of the hottest and arguably most controversial topics in the investment world today, cryptocurrency. And let's not forget, we're still waiting for the DOL's final rule on ESG, as well as new proposed rules on being an investment advice fiduciary. So for this episode, we thought we would take a grab bag approach and briefly cover a number of recent topics. We want to make sure our listeners are up to speed. Of course, if anything we discuss piques your interest and you would like to discuss further, we encourage you to contact us or any of our colleagues here at Ropes and Gray. With that introduction, let's jump right into the conversation. John, of course, the series has focused on the persistent wave of excessive fee lawsuits that have targeted ERISA retirement plans over the last few years. When we did a roundup of the recent cases for our seventh episode, back in September 2021, we thought maybe the tide would finally start to turn. We anticipated what would happen in the Supreme Court in Hughes versus Northwestern. What does the landscape look like now with the Supreme Court decision in the rearview mirror? Well, Jack, the state of play remains largely the same. New lawsuits are continuing to be filed every week, which include many of the same types of claims we have been seeing for a long time now. Allegations of excessive record keeping and administrative fees being charged to plan participant accounts, plaintiffs questioning the prudence of using multiple record keepers to administer 403B plans, and the selection and retention of allegedly overpriced and underperforming investments, especially Uh, the use of higher-cost retail share class mutual funds instead of what are generally lower-cost institutional share classes of the same investments. By my count, at least 23 new lawsuits have been filed uh, as of the recording that have accused sponsors and fiduciaries of plan mismanagement and breaches of their ERISA duties of prudence and loyalty since the Northwestern opinion came out at the end of January. Furthermore, According to some recent data published by Bloomberg Law, there are proposed class actions currently pending in more than half of U.S. federal district courts, and of the more than 170 cases filed since 2020, far more than 50 have at least partially survived a motion to dismiss, leaving only about a dozen that have been dismissed. So it sounds like we previously described Northwestern as a missed opportunity for the court. Would you say it's played out that way? I think that's right, Jack. The court's decision to avoid articulating stricter pleading standards for these types of complaints, or more broadly, to avoid providing greater clarity around this important procedural issue of ERISA litigation, has really preserved the status quo. But to jump in here, John, besides all the new lawsuits, we also have to consider the impact of Northwestern has had on pending cases. I recall there were a number of cases that were paused last year so that the judges could see how the Supreme Court was going to rule in Northwestern. What's happened since then? Thank you for raising that, David. 
as we record this now, almost four and a half months after Northwestern came out, a number of district courts have denied motions to dismiss where the courts were put on hold temporarily, finding questions of fact or sufficient allegations to advance to discovery. And in doing so, the courts have often referred to the context-specific inquiry language that we saw cited in the Northwestern opinion. For example, um, back in April, a Connecticut district court judge rejected a motion submitted by Xerox and its planned fiduciaries to dismiss a complaint alleging plan mismanagement. And in the opinion, the judge mentioned that context-specific inquiry standard. The opinion also mentioned how, and I quote, a court ought to be cognizant that ERISA plaintiffs generally lack the inside information necessary to make out their claims in detail unless and until discovery commences. Oh, John, that last sentence strikes me as a pretty forgiving standard for plaintiffs. It seems to suggest that an ERISA claim may withstand a motion to dismiss based on sufficient circumstantial factual allegations to support the claim, even in the absence of direct allegations of misconduct. I completely agree with you, David. I think this is exactly why so many practitioners uh, we're hopeful the justices would provide a more concrete and rigorous standard in Northwestern, but at least for now, that's not what we have. Instead, lower courts are basically left to their own devices to figure out which claims should proceed and which should not. So, John, on a related note, I was reading about the Ninth Circuit reversing a couple motions to dismiss recently. Can you shed some light on what's going on in California? Thanks for mentioning that, Jack. You're thinking of the Salesforce and Trader Joe's cases. First, on April 8th, the Ninth Circuit revived a proposed class action brought by Salesforce employees alleging the company mismanaged their $2 billion 401k plan, holding that the plaintiffs had stated a plausible claim that the dependents imprudently failed to select lower-cost share classes uh, with substantially identical underlying assets, and that the defendants imprudently failed to investigate and timely switch to cheaper alternatives that had the same underlying investments and asset allocations as their mutual fund. Then just a week later, uh, a Ninth Circuit panel held that a California Central District Court judge erred in dismissing plaintiff's claims for breach of fiduciary duty against Trader Joe's and its planned fiduciaries, which alleged the defendants had imprudently failed to monitor and control the inclusion of certain retail share classes on the plan menu. For now, those are the only circuit court opinions we have post-Northwestern, but it could generate momentum for more of these types of reversals. For example, we will have to see what becomes of the plaintiff's appeal in the AT&T litigation that was filed in the Ninth Circuit recently, which is seeking to revive a 250,000-member class action that was dismissed last year. The plaintiffs have argued that AT&T failed to obtain required disclosures from service providers, and they failed to evaluate the reasonableness of the compensation paid to those service providers providers in relation to what services they uh, offer to the plan. Okay, but John, let's be fair here. It hasn't been all bad news for plan sponsors and fiduciaries. For instance, earlier this year, United Surgical Partners got a proposed class action suit challenging the 401k plan fees dismissed when a judge in the Northern District of Texas ruled that employees failed to explain how their retirement accounts were invested and therefore failed to demonstrate standing to challenge specific plan investment options. The judge also said that the plaintiffs failed to state a viable claim for fiduciary breach based on high plan fees 
because their complaint didn't include specific details about the services their plan received in exchange for those fees. Now, the judge did give the plaintiffs an opportunity to amend the complaint, which they have since filed. So we'll have to see if things change. But at the moment, this is a pretty recent example of plan sponsors' motions to dismiss being granted. It's a fair point, David. And to build on that, there was also the Barrick Gold decision uh, in the last couple of months where a district court judge out in Utah had granted Barrick's uh, motion to dismiss the entirety of the plaintiff's complaint with prejudice. The complaint had alleged that the plan fiduciaries had failed to act in the best interest of the plan participants because the plan retained, again, those expensive mutual fund investments. And the plaintiffs had also failed to leverage the size of the plan to negotiate for lower expense ratios for certain investment options or lower record-keeping fees and the like. According to the judge, the plaintiffs focus on a handful of funds and just a small window of time. Moreover, they relied on comparisons of dissimilar investment options, and a number of their allegations contain incorrect information that, when corrected, show that many of the plans' investment management fees are lower than the ones the plaintiffs actually cited as examples. The judge basically concluded by saying plaintiffs have pledged circumstantial facts that are merely consistent uh, with liability. Interestingly, since then, the plaintiffs have filed a motion for reconsideration in reliance on Northwestern, as well as the Ninth Circuit's orders to revive the uh, cases in Trader Joe's and Salesforce. The plaintiffs also filed a notion of appeal to the Tenth Circuit, although that appeal has been stayed until resolution of the motion for reconsideration. All of this is to say we may end up with a new circuit split in the aftermath of Northwestern. So stay tuned, guys. So, yeah, I think that's really helpful context for our listeners and plant sponsors. But hearing this, maybe now would be a good time to remind our listeners of some measures plant fiduciaries and sponsors can take. Not so much to prevent a lawsuit, but to improve their chances of getting a favorable outcome in court. David, do you mind speaking to that? Sure, Jack, I'd be happy to do that. And I'm sure we kind of sound like a broken record here. Um, because we've continued to stress this in this series. But putting in place and following good fiduciary practices will be one of the most important defenses against a potential lawsuit and more likely to persuade a judge. Having in place a well-documented process that is used consistently and in good faith should provide a strong defense for planned fiduciaries. This entails a process that ensures, number one, The plan fiduciaries are regularly monitoring the plan's investment options. And number two, that the plan complies with adopted, formal, written policies in making investment decisions and in following operational procedures. For instance, some good monitoring and documentation practices should include retaining and regularly meeting with an investment advisor on a quarterly basis and evaluating the performance of each fund in comparison to its peers, carefully selecting and monitoring service providers, which should also include scrutinizing their cybersecurity protocols in accordance with recent DOL guidance, issuing RFPs on a periodic basis in order to benchmark your record-keeping fees, investment advisor fees, and any other fees that are being paid from plan participant account balances. Oh, David, let me stop you there. Your your point about issuing periodic RFPs to benchmark fees is well taken. 
since a plant's fees should align with the current industry trend. While a service provider's fee structure may have been favorable to the plant five years ago, given all the pressures on lowering fees as a result of the litigation climate and vendor competition and consolidation, it's quite possible that a plant's fees from five years ago are now out of date and could be recharacterized as excessive fees by current market standards. Yeah, Jack, I just want to go back um, to those written policies you're talking about briefly and emphasize the importance of continuously revisiting those documents and revising them as needed. I mean, there's always changes in, in regulations and things that one needs to be considering. And, you know, we really can't stress enough how crucial it is to have up-to-date policies in place that are being diligently followed. If your practices shift over time, but your documents remain the same, that's a vulnerability for these plaintiff firms, and I'm sure they'll latch on to it. On a separate note, let's also not forget the importance of fiduciary liability insurance. ERISA does not require fiduciaries to purchase such coverage, but it is certainly prudent to have it as it protects the plan fiduciaries against personal liability imposed upon them by ERISA to restore losses to the plan caused by any breaches. Such policies cover judgments and settlements and are designed to provide a defense when lawsuits are brought against fiduciaries acting in their capacity as the planned fiduciary. Jack, what have you seen in terms of the impact of the proliferation of large class action fee and plan investment litigation has had on the fiduciary insurance market recently? So, right, given the significant number of ERISA class action suits, we started to see the fiduciary insurance carriers bulking up their due diligence process when quoting or renewing fiduciary coverage. As part of this process, the carriers generally issue a intake questionnaire asking a bunch of questions about the fiduciary policies and practices. However, providers of this insurance, they're, they're well aware of what's going on in the courts and we're beginning to see questions from the carriers that are specifically focused and directed at the potential risk exposure of ERISA litigation. Many of these additional questions we're seeing revolve around the best practices David and I have just gone through and all the other topics we've been discussing as part of this podcast series, like fiduciary processes, monitoring investments, benchmarking vendors, and cybersecurity protocols. And as always, we advise any plan sponsors to speak with their ERISA counsel to discuss fiduciary insurance options specifically given the potential for personal, individual liability under ERISA. So switching gears, John, do you want to give an update on the SECURE 2.0 legislation? Sure, I'd be happy to, Jack. Uh, so back on March 29, 2022, the House passed in overwhelmingly bipartisan fashion H.R. 2954, the Securing a Strong Retirement Act of 2022, which has been nicknamed SECURE 2.0. As its name implies, H.R. 2954 builds on that major retirement reform legislation that was signed into law at the end of 2019. Then, just before Memorial Day, Senators Murray and Burr, the chairwoman and ranking member, respectively, of the Senate uh, Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions, or Health Committee, released a discussion draft of their legislation uh, entitled the Retirement Improvement and Savings Enhancement to Supplement Healthy Investments for the Nest Egg Act, abbreviated the Rise and Shine Act. The Rise and Shine Act uh, was formally proposed in the uh, Senate Health Committee on June 7th, 
Uh, and that legislation builds off of H.R. 2954, as well as a couple of other retirement bills that have been released in the Senate uh, over the last year or so, including the Cardin-Portman bill, as well as the RISE Act. On June 14th, the Health Committee approved uh, the Rise and Shine Act by a unanimous voice vote and cleared it for consideration by the full Senate, where it is expected to be merged with forthcoming legislation by the Senate Finance Committee. So now I just want to walk through uh, some of the provisions of H.R. 2954, Secure 2.0, and we'll note how it differs a little bit from, um, from, from the Senate bill. H.R. 2954 contains various provisions seeking to expand plan coverage, increase savings and lifetime income options, and promote efficiencies in plan administration. I think it's worth highlighting a few now. Note, a number of these provisions are not in the Rise and Shine Act, now known as Senate Bill 4353, but it's possible they'll make their way back into whatever final legislation we see later this summer or early fall once the House and Senate bills are merged into a final bill, which hopefully will pass later this year, probably in a lame duck session after the November election. So just walking through a few of the provisions of uh, Secure 2.0, one of the signature features of the legislation is the auto-enrollment provision, which says that new 401k, 403b, and simple plans must automatically enroll participants upon becoming eligible with an opt-out allowed at a minimum of 3% of pay. Uh, and increasing in 1% increments until reaching 10% of pay. There is some grandfathering available for, for plans, but new plans going forward after the date of enactment would be subject to this auto-enrollment, auto-escalation requirement, unless otherwise exempt. Hey, John, the mandatory auto-enrollment feature is one of the prominent examples, I think, of what is absent in the Senate bill. This wasn't entirely surprising, of course. The media reports indicate that the full mandate wouldn't make it into the legislation. Instead, it would be replaced by provisions that might make it easier and simpler for small companies to offer plans. Um, you know, and as an example, the Senate bill would require businesses that auto-enroll participants voluntarily to do so every three years, leading workers who opt out to have to regularly reconsider participating in the plan. That, that's right, David. And um, another provision where we're seeing that um, disparity, uh, it's not in the Senate bill, is the uh, treatment of student loan payments as elective deferrals for purposes of matching contributions. Uh, in Secure 2.0, this section of the bill permits an employer to make matching contributions under a qualified plan with respect to uh, student loan payments, which are broadly defined as any indebtedness incurred by the employee solely to pay qualified higher education expenses. For purposes of the non-discrimination test that applies to elective contributions, the legislation permits a plan to test separately the employees who receive matching contributions on student loan repayment. Yeah, I think this provision allowing employers to match workers' student loan repayments in the form of retirement plan contributions is also missing from the Senate bill, right? That is right. And, you know, it remains to be seen uh, where that goes if, let's say, the Senate Finance Committee ends up reinserting the provision. But, yeah, for at least for now, that's something that we are going to want to see how that, that piece of the legislation changes. Moving on, I just want to touch on how Secure 2.0 also addresses um, certain enhancements to 403B plans. Uh, in particular, 
Secure 2.0 would permit 403B plans to invest in group trusts or CITs. As many listeners know, under current law, 403B plans investments are generally limited to annuity contracts and mutual funds, which prevent participants from accessing CITs, which are now very often used by 401k plans due to their lower fees. Yeah, it's interesting in the, you know, the litigation that we were talking about a little bit earlier, you know, some of the plaintiffs cite the fact that, you know, plan sponsors weren't offering CITs because CITs tend to generally be less expensive. And, you know, the 403B plans um, are only allowed to use the mutual funds or annuities, which tend to be more expensive. So it's a little strange that this is also um, missing from the Senate bill. Yeah, it, it is odd. And as far as I can tell from, from what I've seen released by the legislators, there hasn't really been any explanation offered for why why that is the case yet. But we'll, we'll have to see how that plays out. Another uh, feature of the uh, Secure 2.0 legislation is the multiple employer 403B plans. If folks recall, under the original SECURE Act, made multiple employer plans or MEPs more attractive by eliminating outdated barriers and improving the quality of MEP service providers. The current legislation in, in the House allows for a 3D plans to participate in MEPs, including PEPs, pooled employer plans, including relief from the one bad apple rule so that the violations of one employer do not affect the tax treatment of employees of compliant employers. The good news is, of course, that this also appears in the, the Senate bill. And again, on the, you know, particularly for smaller plan sponsors, you know, this is really a, a positive thing because, again, you can get at lower fees, um, more institutional share classes, things like that, that make the, uh, the plan more attractive to participants. Thanks for that additional color, David. There are a lot of other provisions in the legislation. Uh, there's stuff about 403B hardship rules being conformed to the 401K rule. There's some revenue-raising provisions in there as well. So if you haven't already uh, gone through it, it's certainly worth checking out some of the, the, the provisions in, in the legislation. It's pretty wide-ranging in scope. Well, I think that was a great summary, John and David. And given the bipartisan support for the House bill and the general desire to improve and expand the retirement savings of the American workers, hopefully this legislation will not get logjam in the Senate. We'll have to see what happens this summer. Finally, let's wrap up this episode with a discussion on one of the hottest topics in the news these days, cryptocurrency. In March, the DOL published a compliance assistance release to provide guidance for 401k plan fiduciaries who are considering plan investments in cryptocurrencies, and it's generated a huge response thus far, both positive and negative. David, I'm going to send this one your way. Jack, I'd be delighted to take that one. By way of background, in that release, the DOL cautioned fiduciaries to exercise extreme care before they consider adding cryptocurrency option to a 401k plan lineup for participants. According to the guidance, the DOL's concerns stem from the significant risks of fraud, theft, and loss that have characterized these assets up to this point. Since then, the DOL has faced major pushback from industry groups who have asked the agency to actually rescind the guidance, claiming that the release's language about brokerage windows in particular amounted to a new standard under ERISA and that therefore warranted notice and comment rulemaking procedures 
and review from the White House's Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs. In particular, people are up in arms over the language in the release that says EPSA expects to conduct an investigative program aimed at plans that offer participant investments in cryptocurrencies and related products and to take appropriate action to protect the interest of plan participants and beneficiaries with respect to these investments. The plan fiduciaries responsible for overseeing such investment options or allowing such investments through brokerage windows should expect to be questioned about how they can square their actions with their duties of prudence and loyalty in light of the risks described above. Uh, pretty strong language, I would say, on this one. Um, there's nothing in ERISA or the DOL's regulations that require plan fiduciaries to directly monitor each underlying investment option in a brokerage window. As many listeners may recall, back in 2012, the DOL attempted to require plan fiduciaries to monitor the investments offered through a brokerage window, but it later withdrew the interpretation. In defending the DOL's release, acting EBSA Secretary Kawar stated in media interviews that, and I'm quoting, we never said Section 404 of ERISA ends where the brokerage window begins. And so we don't view this as a sea change that it's been described as. Nonetheless, the language has triggered quite a backlash from industry proponents. Such a backlash, in fact, that just in the last few weeks, 401k service provider uh, known as For Us All which was the first to announce that it would make cryptocurrency available to 401k plan participants through a self-directed window, actually filed a lawsuit against the Department of Labor, alleging that the issuance of its release was arbitrary, capricious, and otherwise not in accordance with the department's statutory authority in violation of the Administrative Procedure Act. Their complaint also claims that the DOL violated the Administrative Procedure Act by issuing the release without going through the notice and comment rulemaking required under the APA. According to the complaint, and I quote, the DOL's release improperly threatens to open investigations of and imposes costs on plans and fiduciaries who are taking lawful action. And for us all is not the only player in the space looking to offer up a crypto platform for retirement plans. So back in April, Fidelity announced the launch of its workplace digital assets account a product that will enable individuals to have a portion of their retirement plan savings allocated to Bitcoin through their 401k plan investment lineup. Since announcing this new initiative, Fidelity has gone back and forth with the DOL as to how Fidelity program will square up with the DOL's guidance. Most recently, Secretary Kawar mentioned at the Insured Retirement Institute's annual conference in May how the DOL and Fidelity have had discussions about the consumer safeguards that are included in the Fidelity crypto product. And that while the conversation with Fidelity has been forthright, fairly cordial and candid, I was quoting there, the DOL still has its misgivings. We'll have to see if this new For Us All lawsuit will only make the DOL more strident in defending its guidance. Most recently, the DOL has indicated that it's considering whether to issue a rule that would address the appropriateness of cryptocurrency in 401k plans. In response to a line of questioning at a House Education and Labor Committee panel held on June 14th, DOL Secretary Walsh told the committee that the department is, quote, looking at potentially going through a rulemaking process 
on the industry as a whole. So we're going to have to continue to watch this and see how the story unfolds. On that note, that's all the time we have for today's episode. Thank you so much to John and David for joining me and sharing many valuable insights. And thank you for joining us as well. For more information on the topics that we have discussed, please visit our website at www.ropesgray.com. And of course, if we can help you navigate any of the topics we discussed today, please don't hesitate to get in touch. You can subscribe and listen to these series wherever you regularly listen to podcasts, including Apple, Google, and Spotify.